Today's scripture passage is Romans 9, verses 1 through 5. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Dylan, I'm one of the pastors here. So thankful that you guys have joined us. It's a joy to be together on the Lord's Day. It's a joy to be, well, it's a joy to be together on the Lord's Day. That was a, I think that's uh, Amazing Grace is 250 years old now, something like that. And man, that was a holy moment <laughs> um, to sing about the grace of God. So we turn to Romans chapter nine. A passage that's kind of starting in chapter 9, going through all the way through chapter 11. This is difficult stuff. And I want us to approach it rightly. We always should approach the, the word of the Lord with a sense of humility, adoration, and worship. I want us to go in with that in mind, too. That this is the, the amazing grace, the God that shows the amazing grace that we just sung of is the same God who has graciously given us this word. So let's just pause a minute and, and still our hearts and be quiet before this Lord uh, as we approach his word. Father in heaven, we just want to thank you for your word. For the mercy that you show in the very act of speaking to us. May we not take that grace, that mercy that you have shown for granted, but rightly sit in it, in adoration of you and thankfulness and humility. May we be a people who aren't just by our mouths those who sit under the authority of your written word, but by our practice, even this morning, may we show that it is your word that informs and instructs us. And that we desire to be your people who are commanded at your will to do what you desire. So form us and shape us by your word. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. And we began the book of Romans several, seems like months ago, it's probably just weeks. That Paul was eager, he says, to minister the gospel to those who are in Rome. That the saints, those who had been saved and changed and transformed by the grace of God. The, the gospel is what he wants to get out. That's what he's a minister of, the, the gospel of God. It's the gospel that he says is, is so gloriously gracious to us that it has the power to save. In, in chapter 1, verse 16, the, the gospel is the power of God unto what? Unto salvation to those who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God, right? Standing with God 
is revealed from faith for faith. Right standing, he says, with God, a holy God, is possible for sinners, whether they're Jewish sinners or Greek sinners, by faith in Jesus Christ. And this news that we can have right standing with God through faith in Jesus, that message, that news articulated, is news that has the power to save to transform, to, to move from one from death to life. And this salvation, this good news is needed. Because in a, in a world where good news is going out, we are the bad news, right? We, we all have sinned. That, that is so clear. Salvation is needed because he has told us, chapter 1, that God's wrath has revealed, been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, of which we all partake. And he makes sure that he goes down and he strips everybody back in chapters 1 and 2 and 3. And he makes sure that they know that they're included in that people of which the unrighteousness of God, the wrath against that unrighteousness is revealed. All have fallen short, he says, and fallen short of the glory of God. But in this gospel that he is eager to minister, one can be justified, made right in God's sight, counted as righteousness. He says this is done not by works. You can't earn your way into it. You can't work up to it. It's by faith in Jesus who God put forward as our redemption, the one who is the propitiation by his own blood to be received by faith. He, he says in chapter 4 that this Jesus was the one who was delivered up for our trespasses, raised for our justification, and that anyone who receives this Jesus by faith, chapter 5, has peace with God, is reconciled to God, is one who has been moved from being only one who is under the first Adam, uh, under a reign of sin and death, to the one who is now under the second Adam, a, a reign of life unto life. We can be freed from death's reign. And, and chapter 6, he says, then if that's true of you, if you're found in this new Adam, Jesus Christ, you're no longer a slave to your sin anymore to do what it says. You can actually walk in the freedom of the law of Christ. He says that you're united with Christ now in this uh, amazing union that you have, that you have actually died with him and that you are raised with him to walk in newness of life. And, and sure, chapter 7, all we remain in the flesh, we know sin's presence remains, that there's a lot of groaning yet to be done before this world is finally and fully redeemed by God and our bodies are redeemed. There's lots of groaning, but there's also great assurance in the gospel, right? We just were there in Romans chapter 8. Do you mind if we go back over Romans chapter 8 again? I mean, it's like, give us that all day long. Like, let's put that record on repeat. Romans 8, it declares some of the greatest gospel promises there are in all of the scripture. There's no condemnation, verse 1, for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, right now, if you're in Christ Jesus now, there's no condemnation for you. Not just that there isn't, an, like it's past, but you might have some more in the future. It's, it's gone. It no longer exists. There's no condemnation right now in Christ Jesus. Or verse 2, the, the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Down to verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, guess what's going to happen? He who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Verse 14, that the spirit is the one who says, we're led by the spirit of God. He's testifying to us that we're sons of God. We've been adopted into the very family of God. Verse 16, the spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're children. Verse 17, if we're children, here's a promise, we're heirs, fellow heirs with Christ. He's the one who is going to inherit all things. Everything is his, and we get to be heirs along with Christ, verse 26, says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what to pray for as we are, but the Spirit, He's helping us. 
Verse 28, we know that all things are going to be working for our good. In verse 30, those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. There's this exact movement for all those people. Like he's going to move you from, from the beginning to the end. He's keeping you and sustaining you. And, and then when we think about these, he's like, well, then what should we say about these things? If God is for us, because that's the reality in the gospel now, we're reconciled to God. God is actually for us. Not that he's just not against us. He's positively for us. Then, then who could be against us? He who didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And this all things that he talks about there in verse 32 certainly would include what he's getting ready to say in verses 33 through, through 38 and 9, right? That there's no charge that could be brought against God's elect. That there's nothing that could separate us from the love of God. That we're actually more than conquerors through Christ. And so what Romans 8 does is it moves us from this place of no condemnation, verse 1, to the end, which is no separation from the love of God. It moves us from predestination before time to glory, right? predestination to presentation as sons of God, from those who are being called and foreknown to those who are being glorified. I mean, these glorious gospel assurances just drip from every word in Romans chapter 8. The grace that saves is the grace that sanctifies, and the grace that saves and sanctifies is the grace that's going to lead us all the way home to glory, where we will be with the Lord forever. Remember the, the Edwards uh, outline for Romans 8, I think is pretty helpful. The bad things will work out for good, the good things can't be taken away, and the best things are yet to come. And that's what Romans, especially Romans 8, has plainly and gloriously said to us so far. But what if all those words had failed? What if God wasn't faithful to those promises? The good news of the gospel, along with its assurances, is only good news if those words hold. All those things we just talked about that stir in us encouragement in life. The only good things if God is actually faithful now, why would this be in question? We need to remember the audience of Romans and remember the setting. Paul wrote to a church, and this church are the saints who are in Rome, and they are saints who are made up of, they're multi-ethnic, they're at least Jews and non-Jews, Jews and Greeks that are there. And they heard the content of this letter differently than what we are hearing through our ears. Not that it's a different letter, but they have a different sensitivity to it, a different understanding of these things, a closeness to some things that we are a little bit further away from that we have to work a little bit harder for. They heard this content through ears that were sensitive to, to the things of Israel and to the things that are Old Testament promises because they are closely connected in relationship with those who are Israelites or Jewish. And they are closer to those promises that were handed down in the Old Testament. So they would have heard through ears that were a little bit particularly tuned and sensitive to those kinds of things. Now hear the gospel again as we go through Romans. In chapter 1, verse 3, this is the gospel concerning the Son of God who was descended from David. That would have said, so, hey, wait a second, David, we remember him. He was Israelite, the great king of the past. In chapter 1, verse 16, this is the gospel. It has the power to save to the Jew first and also to the Greek 
He told them in chapter 3, verse 2, that there's value in circumcision. And there's value in the law. In chapter 4, he talks about the promises to Abraham and how he became a father of all. He's Abraham the forefather, and, and that's verse 1. And then he has offspring in chapter 4, verse 13. In chapters 5 through 8, then, Paul moves from the promise of Abraham, and he starts talking about all the blessings of these promises. And he, these are blessings that would have been blessings of Israel that he seems to speak about as blessings to Christians. And so they would have thought about these things a little bit differently and heard them in a different context and sensitivity in their ears. And then they're looking around them as a church, and they're looking around, and they're looking at the Jews that are around them. And by and large, this is a people who are not Christian, have rejected Jesus. They hear maybe even of, of how the Jews have been actually a great opposition to the spread of Christianity and the spread of the gospel. How they'd persecuted those who had followed the way, who'd follow Christ. And so what is a church Saints who are in Rome, who, who hear the promises of, of Romans chapter 8, to make of Israel's present state with, compared to what the promises of the Old Testament said. Or what is a church to think of a God who made all those Old Testament promises to a specific people, and they don't seem to be like they're looking around, it doesn't seem like they've come to fruition. What do they think about that God in relation to the promises he's made to them? And the question that rises to the surface when thinking of the gospel and thinking of the assurances of the gospel and the promises of the gospel and all those things in light of Israel is, I think, found in verse 6. It's not stated as a question, but you could see it as a question here. It's not as though the word of God failed. And here's the question. Has the word of God failed? I think that's what Paul's getting at. John Piper, he wrote a book dedicated to this section of Scripture, so we'll probably reference him a lot here, but he says this helpfully, that the unbelief of Israel, the chosen people, and their consequent separation from Christ seem to call God's word into question and thus to jeopardize not only the privileged place of Israel, but also the Christian hope as well. Or another author, if God's promises to Israel have not come to fruition... And again, they're experiencing it differently. They're looking around and seeing it doesn't seem like it. By and large, this is a people that doesn't seem to be walking as the people of God in the promises of God. Then how can one be sure that the great promises made to the church, such as in Romans 8, will be fulfilled? And so verse 6, I cast the word of God failed. The gospel and its assurances are based on God's word. That's where we find them. They're based on the character of God, God's faithfulness. So if God isn't faithful, then what happens to those things? If God's word fails, then what happens to those things? What if, verse 6, the word of God has failed? And let's just take the test case. What if it's failed for Israel? Then what does that then mean for the church, New Testament believers in Christ Jesus? It's a tough question. Piper continues, he says, what's at stake ultimately in these chapters? Speaking of chapters 9, 10, and 11. Is not the fate of Israel, that is pin ultimate, we will talk about that surely. Ultimately, God's own trustworthiness is at stake. I wonder this morning if you've ever questioned that yourself. 
Have you ever had a similar question to that? God, can your word fail? God, are you actually faithful? Because the things I'm looking around and seeing and experiencing don't seem to always line up with what you've said. And, and maybe I'm not sure if that's your word has failed. Maybe I'm seeing it wrongly. Maybe you're not a faithful God. All of those things might come in and out of you. I wonder if you've had that question. And here's the reality of that question is that God's not scared of it. For he's so kind of God to lead Paul He's carried along by the Spirit as he pins chapter nine, chapters 9, 10, and 11. He, he's so kind to lean into this question through his servant Paul, through these promises that he's made. He, he's not backing away from them at all, like, oops, like, let's kind of forget about some of those things I made promises for in the Old Testament, and let's just act like that never happened because that people is really wicked and it doesn't seem like that's working out, so we're going to start over from scratch. No, it matters. And God doesn't Avoid it. Paul, he anticipates these kinds of questions and he addresses them. Paul moves toward and into some really difficult questions because he's upholding, first and foremost, the, the word of God. He is upholding the character of God. He is helping real people understand this word and know the faithfulness of God. And so if you have questions about God, here's what I can say I think is just true from just having this in front of us and Paul anticipating these things and addressing it, that the Bible is actually your book. We wouldn't say like if you have questions about God, you need to search all over. Maybe search all over, but for sure search here. God is not pushing your problems away, saying you just got to come in and just you, you listen and you hear and you do everything. Like, yeah, but there's questions that he gives you here because he's kind. Now, the, the Bible doesn't always ask the questions we want it to ask or in the way we want it to ask. It doesn't always give answers in the way we want to receive them or the answers that we actually want on our terms. But here's what the Bible does. It addresses real people with real questions about a real God without skirting around the difficult. Chapters 9, 10, 11 in Romans are difficult. And if we're picking texts ourselves as pastors, like, this might be one we'd avoid every now and then. But I think that would be disingenuous. And God is not scared of these chapters. And so chapters 9, 10, 11, yeah, they have some difficult content, but I actually think here's some great encouragement for us. There are real answers to real questions that people have. And so you have a God that's not scared of them, but actually moves into them and, and leads his servant to write them. So if you have questions about some of the faithfulness of God, or if his word is true and all those things, if you have questions about those things, like stay put in these chapters and, and hold on and hold on together in community with this word together and we'll work through it. Because it's kind of the Lord to anticipate these questions to address them. It's kind of him to give us a word, it's merciful of him, to show how these things can hold together. How can I have made these Old Testament promises and we talk about Israel now? And how can these New Testament promises, these Romans 8 promises, still be true for Christians now? Those all matter and God is not avoiding them all. He wants us to know about them all. And so these real questions, what they have done, actually they, they're not separate from chapters 1 through 8. They actually flow from chapters 1 through 8. And all these chapters that we've talked about, the greatness of God and the promises of God, like... From that, we need to think, well, well, can these promises hold? And so we're moving, like, there's, there's kind of an abrupt, it seems, shift from chapters 1 through 8 and the great gospel promises to 9 through 11, which is difficult content, the, the sovereignty of God, the future of Israel. It seems like an abrupt, abrupt shift, but, but the transition is explained because out of chapters 1 through 8, you get those kinds of questions. It explains why Paul goes from the mountaintop of chapter 8 
where we're ending with nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord to this lament that starts chapter 9. I mean, chapter 9 starts very differently than where we just ended. And you would have remembered if you were in that context and you were hearing this seconds before Romans 9 is read, Romans 8 is read. And so this abrupt shift, you, you can see, but you can understand it now, is like out of chapters 1 through 8 comes these questions. And so what verses 1 through 5 of chapter 9 does is I think that it gives us the, the frame for all of chapters 9, 10, and 11. And, and that kind of, I think, centered, centered around that, that chapter, or verse 6 question, has the word of God failed? That's what I think Paul is getting at in these chapters. But what this first five verses does is it gives us as not only just an introduction, but the right postures to have. The right posture, I think, toward the lost, Paul shows us. A right posture towards the privileges of God and a right posture toward God. So, so look at where he moves in verse 1. He, he thinks about the lost, thinks about lost Israel, and he laments, I'm speaking the truth of Christ, in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. The, the tone, like we just went from... Nothing can separate us. Yeah, I get the tone of chapter 8 too. I'm in sorrow. I have great anguish in my heart. He's troubled. The, the tone here is very solemn. It's very impassioned. He's lamenting. In other words, the content that he's, he's bringing to them right now is, has a heavy weight on Paul. A huge bearing on him. Now why? Maybe because Paul was accused of disloyalty. Like, Paul, you're a Jew. Don't you care about your own people? Maybe he'd been accused of that. He'd laid some pretty heavy indictments down upon the Jewish people, upon Israel, hadn't he? And he had also then extended out equal access to God to Gentiles, hadn't he? So maybe they thought, you're called the apostle to the Gentiles. Like, are you even loyal to us? Do you care about these promises? Do you care about these things or where we've come from and what this means for us today? So maybe he had that accusation flying against us. Or maybe he just feels the theological weight at what's at stake here in this question of, has God's word failed? Is God actually faithful or is he not faithful? Maybe he feels the, the weight of that, the weight of all that we can think about of Israel and all those Old Testament promises. Maybe he feels the theological weight of all those things and he comes with this tone that's impassioned and burdened and lamenting. Here's what we can tell about Paul. He's no unfeeling theological robot. As if he just like computes out theological data. It's a man whose heart is weighed down and burdened. His heart, he reveals here, it, it's heavy with great sorrow and unceasing anguish. Why? It doesn't tell us exactly here, but I think we can infer what he's saying. Verse 3 says, For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. I think we can infer from what Paul's getting at, knowing some of the content of, of chapters 9, 10, 11, that, that what Paul is, is really, he's, what's weighing is down, what's giving him his anguish and great sorrow in his heart is that the Jews, the, the Israelites, they are a people that are cut off from Christ by and large. And for that very reality, Paul laments. And he looks at a real people, Faces that he would have known. 
and their spiritual state before God, and it leads him to sorrow. And I think that his lament here in these verses is instructive. Hey, what do we lament and have great sorrow and anguish over? What brings you anguish? What weighs your heart down? Now, if you're a Christian, I hope what's included, what I think is included in that is lostness around you. But I wonder if the spiritual state of the lost is, is actually primary in that. Do we lament over the lost, those people, those faces themselves, or the symptoms of their lostness? There's a difference. I'm not saying we don't lament about the symptoms, but that's not primary, it's secondary. Do we just lament about the problems caused when people walk in unbelief or the people themselves in their spiritual state before God? I've heard a lot recently and seen signs for this. It seems like they're, they're more out there than ever before. Pray for America. I just heard the other day a guy said, pray for America. With kind of a lamenting tone. Like, all right, I get it. What, but what do you want me to pray for? Pray for America. Is that for spiritual lostness? Is that what we're praying for? Is that what we're asking? Is that the tone that we're lamenting? Or is it more politically things aren't what I want? Are we to pray for America because there's a rejection of the gospel or because things aren't going our way? I, I get a sense that it's not in order. Maybe that's not true for you. It's just the sense I receive from that. Are we, are we saying, like, pray for America, it's because of the evil in the world that we don't like, which is good. We shouldn't like evil in the world. Paul's going to tell us in Romans, like, abhor, hate what is evil. Is it because of the problems of unbelief, or is it for actual unbelievers themselves? That's what Paul's lamenting here. Christians should lament evil and the problems that it's caused, the problems caused by people walking in unbelief. That is an issue. We should care about that and lament that and pray for that, sure. But that's not the first concern. First concern is the lost themselves. Paul's anguish and lament here was a concern for the spiritual state of people of actual souls before God. This is why in chapter 1, he says, I'm eager to minister the gospel to those who are in Rome because the gospel is the first of us importance to him and he wants to get that gospel out. It has the power to save and so he laments here in relation to that eagerness there. He's eager for the gospel to do its work because there's lostness, not because of cultural concerns and societal problems first but because there's lostness before God, that people are truly under the wrath of God apart from Christ. And he laments that. His eagerness is tied to his anguish. And gospel eagerness and gospel anguish are the right kind of postures the gospel people take toward the lost. We're eager to get it out there because we're in anguish of their spiritual state before God, before we're in anguish and sorrow over other things. And Paul wants people to receive the gospel because they can be reconciled to God through hearing and believing this good news. And Paul's looking around and he knows that his people, by and large, have rejected it. And it brings him anguish. And the depth of Paul's anguish and concern is revealed when he says, I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of them. The word he uses there is anathema. You might have heard us use that before. It, it, cursed. Like he's just showing, like here's his heart revealed. Anguish. Deeply troubled. I want to be accursed. I could wish that for their sake. 
The, the sense is not that he could actually be accursed, that's a real option, or that it's actually possible for it to be cut off. Again, remember, seconds ago, he had just said there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. But his posture toward his kinsmen, toward his brothers, is that I wish that I could be cut off for their sake. His posture towards them is one of compassion, of great love, of deep concern. And Lord, he's saying, I'm willing to go down in order for them not to reject the gospel that's revealed to us in Christ Jesus. I'm willing to go down that they might be saved in Christ. And when he says this in verse 3, he kind of strikes the same posture towards the unbelieving people around him as Moses does with Israel. You remember Moses in the Exodus, Exodus 32, we're, we're just fresh off the golden calf incident. He sees what's going on there, and listen to what he says in Exodus 32, 32. He says, forgive their sin. If not, please blot me out of your book. That's what, that's what Moses says. It's really interesting. Moses had just brought them out. They've already caused him a lot of trouble, and he's not bitter. He, he prays, like, blot me out. Do, do good for them. He doesn't say, you know what, you're right. They're actually kind of jerks. They've already caused me a decent amount of trouble. I'm sure there's more to come. Start over with me. Paul doesn't do that either. Paul had ministered to the Jews, right? He had his, his ministry was, I'm going to go to the synagogue first. And he goes there and he is so often, so quickly rejected. Not just rejected at times, like they want to kill him. He could look at that and be like, yeah, all right. You made some promises there, and I come from that, but good grief, like, let's be done with that. But he's not bitter here. He doesn't call for judgment here. He laments. He's not angry with them. He's compassionate toward them. He's concerned for them. He's full of love. His heart's revealed here, and it's not a heart of like, well, I don't know. He's like, no, cut me off. I'll go down for them to to receive salvation. That's what he says. And I've got to be honest here and confess that I have a really hard time identifying with that. I have a hard time identifying with his posture toward the lost around him. Because my posture toward the lost so often is so off. Sadly, my heart can too often be cold or indifferent when thinking about the lost around me. When it should be full of compassion and sorrow, so often it's like, yeah, you know what, they are problem causers. Not cut me off, cut them off. They're the unbelieving. What's your posture toward the lost? Do we think, again, don't cut me off, cut them off? Or do we think, as Paul, cut me off for their sake? Or in our hardness, cut them off? Paul could have said that. They caused me problems. They refuse to believe. I, go, I keep going, Lord. I go to those synagogues, and they reject me. They toss me out. They don't want anything to do with my message. They refuse to believe. But I can't help but wonder when Paul looks at his brothers, his kinsmen, that's how he describes the Israelites, if he doesn't see himself. He looks around at the unbelieving Jews, maybe even those who had persecuted him personally, and he might see himself because that was Paul, wasn't it? That was him. Listen to what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He says, formerly I was a blasphemer persecutor 
insolent opponent. That's who Paul was, the worst of his opponents as he writes the, the Roman, Roman letter. And he says, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And the saying is trustworthy and deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He's convinced of that, so he goes to sinners to give them that message, the good news of Jesus Christ. And he says of those sinners, of whom I'm the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. He just breaks forth in doxology, praise here, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor, glory forever and ever. Amen. What does he see when he looks at the lost? He might see himself, but he knows that he'd received mercy, that grace had overflowed to him. And to have the right posture toward the lost, to have a compassion toward their spiritual state before God, be full of love for them and anguish and sorrow over their state before God. We need to learn to see ourselves in them. When we look at the lost, we think, that's me. But I received mercy. God's grace rescued me. Jesus came and saved me. That's the only way I'm out of this. I didn't work my way out of it. I didn't earn something from God. He was gracious to me. It overflowed to me. I was a wretch. His grace came in. I deserved anything but his mercy. He shows me great mercy. I didn't deserve to be sought after and saved. Jesus comes to seek and save. The heart of Paul here is the heart of Christ. When Christ came, he looks at the crowds at times and he's just moved with compassion. It's often how the, the gospels describe it. He looks at the crowd and he says they're like sheep without a shepherd and he's moved with compassion toward them. He says, I'm the one who came not to be served but to serve, to give my life as a ransom. I came to seek and save the lost. Paul, he says here in verse 3, I, I could wish that I might be cut off, but Jesus was cut off, wasn't he? Galatians 3.13, he became a curse for us to redeem us from the curse. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, the one who knew no sin became sin so that those who are found in him might become the righteousness of God. He was cut off so that others could receive. He had compassion. He had love. He was in anguish over his people enough to go down to the point of death, even death on the cross. He was cut off to save. That's Paul's heart here. That's the heart and the posture that should be on display for Christians when they look at the spiritual state of the lost around them. Here's what I think would be a layup. I think it would be a layup if I were just to heap shame and guilt. I can do this myself. I did this myself a little bit this week. And as I read this passage, I think like, I can hardly even identify with Paul's posture toward the lost here, that he would be cut off. I can hardly identify with. Here's what's easy, to heap guilt and shame on that and move us to saying like, well, you need to do different with the lost. Your indifference is ridiculous. Stop it. Love the way God loves and feel the guilt and shame of that. You're so unlike Jesus. You're so unlike Paul. And here's what that'll do. That'll motivate. That'll move you for a bit. And then you'll get over it. And your heart will harden back over. 
you know, be indifferent again because you're not cut off. So what difference does it really make if they're cut off? But when we see ourselves as ones who were lost but received the mercy of God, who were lost but Jesus had compassion on us, who were lost but Jesus came to save us, all of a sudden that fixes our posture towards the lost. And so as often as we're hardened and indifferent towards the lost, we go back to that place where we received mercy from Jesus, where we received the compassion of Jesus, where grace overflowed to us in Jesus, and then that keeps moving us rightly towards the lost. When we look to the lost, we see not people that, oh man, I would never be like them. We see self-portraits. That is me. That was me. But for the grace of God. And so that moves us to saying not, oh God, cut them off, but God, have mercy on them. Remember how you had mercy on me? That was incredible, God. Have mercy on them. We might start interceding as Moses did. Or interceding as Paul does here. We'll have anguish in our heart, but we'll also have, along with anguish, again, that came from Paul's eagerness to minister the gospel. Both of those will be there when we think about the lost around us. We'll have this posture, both of anguish and of eagerness, to minister the gospel, this good news that you can have life with God. You can have right standing with God. It's found in Christ Jesus. So let's ask again, what's our posture toward the lost? Maybe it needs correction. Remember your story. We, we don't have the exact same story as Paul. We might say, I was the you know, chief blasphemer, persecutor of the church. That might not be our story. But you were under the wrath of God. An enemy of God, Paul said in Romans. And the only thing that moved you away from being an enemy of God to being reconciled to God was the love of God, the mercy of God, the, the grace of God in Christ Jesus. That's it. And so what does that do in our posture toward the lost? We remember God's love to us. It ought to move us in love. And then when we don't have it and we're indifferent or, or still hardened, we, we keep looking to Jesus like, your heart needs to be my heart. You're going to have to supply it. I can't come up with it. I didn't come up with my own salvation. So now all of a sudden I'm not going to come up with my own love toward the lost. It's got to come from Christ. He's really good at providing and remembering how Jesus saved and had mercy on the lost is vital. Because what that does is it keeps us in this place where, where we don't take the mercy of God, the love of God, the grace of God as something that we're entitled to. We remember, like, I didn't deserve it. Actually, I was an enemy. I was walking away. I wanted to follow my own way, and you had your way, and I had my way, and I didn't like your way. I followed my way, but you rescued me out of that. Amen. That keeps us in a place where we don't take grace for granted. We don't presume upon the mercies of God. It's so easy to do that, isn't it? To assume God's mercy in our life. To presume upon His gifts, His graces, His mercies, His privileges. And I think Paul shows us not only a right posture here toward the lost, but he, I think, helps adjust our posture toward the privileges of the people of God. Look in verse 4. This at least can be a warning. It's a lot more things. Again, this is introduction to chapters 9, 10, 11. There's a lot of content here that we'll get through. He doesn't get to it all here, but I think we can read this and hear a warning. Right? They, the kinsmen that he's been talking about, his brothers, are the Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. The, the Israelites, that, that sums up all that's going to follow, right? To be an Israelite was to be part of the people of God, God's chosen people. It takes them all the way back to Genesis. Remember Abraham? I called father Abraham. I told him he's going to have many sons, right? And the Israelites are the people from that father. It goes a long ways back. Oh yeah, you remember how you're called an Israelite? Oh, that was because 
From Abraham came a son, Jacob, and I changed his name when I wrestled with him one day, and his name became Israel, and out of him became these 12 tribes, the Israelite tribes, and flowing from that are these people. Or in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, he says, out of all the nations, out of all the people, I chose you. You're my treasured possession. Not another nation, this nation. Not another people, this people. Could be any people, it was this people. And this is the people, he says, Israelites belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. In this list here in verse 4, there's two sets of three. Adoption, glory, covenants, and then law, worship, promises. In, in the original, they, they have you know, parallel, I think, I think we'll, we'll establish like they're conceptually related as we go down the list, like pair one, pair two, pair three. But also there's, a, there's an assonance in the original, ia, ia, ah, ah, i, i, that we don't, we'll miss. But I think they're conceptually related and it's helpful to look at them as pairs. Pair one, pair two, pair three. So adoption and the giving of the law. Again, conceptually, I think related. Think about those words strike up Exodus type language where God brings up his people with his mighty arm, his outstretched arm from Egypt to be his treasured possession that he talks about in Deuteronomy to adopt them. He, he brought them out so that he could be them, their God and they could be his people. He's adopting them as sons and he seals that with the giving of the law. So this is how life works when I'm your father and you're the son. Well, the second set is glory and worship. You can see how easily these go together. You have the tent and the temple where God's presence was specifically not with any nation, not at any location, with this nation in this location. God's presence, his glory was there. And so that was the place where they would go, they would move wherever they are, wherever they were within the promised land, they would go to that place and they would offer sacrifices and offerings and worship to this God. The glory and the worship, they go together. How about the covenants and promises? So clearly in intertwine, you can think about covenants to Abraham and Moses and, and David, how the promises were given of, of seed and, and land and blessing to all the nations of the earth. And even within that, those covenants and those promises, there's, there's a sense of future things to come. There's future elements to those things. And all of this, he could say, this is all the good that God has offered to Israelites. They are recipients of these great privileges from God, that all these things, these two sets of lists would be true of them. And he continues, here's more privileges, verse 5. To them, the Israelites, belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. I think Piper helps us when he says, Paul saw the fathers standing at the beginning of Israel's history, and the Christ standing at the culmination of that history. And then he says, this belongs to you. Like, look, look, look at this climax. Well, what a climax. That the Christ, the Messiah, the yes and amen to all of the promises of God is found in this Messiah who came, descended from the Israelites. He is the one, Christ Jesus, that everything else has been pointing to. This is the Messiah. And he says he's humanly descended from Israel. We see all these great privileges, and yet the church, as they're thinking about these things, as they're looking around, their experience would have been differently because they're looking around and looking at Israelites, and by and large, this is a people cut off from Christ. And Paul's anguish here isn't just because they're his kinsmen and brothers. It's not like 
man, we have a close relationship and you're cut off. Through all the privileges and saving promises, his anguish here is because they're so separated from the good news of Christ. They're separated from those promises in their present rejection of Jesus. The problem is that what it looks like is that maybe God's promises aren't in play anymore when I look around and I think about Israel. Because look at the privileges, and then I'm looking around, and I'm not seeing those things come to fruition. That's what brings anguish in Paul. Because there's anguish in Paul. He looks around, and he's like, there's not anguish in Israel. These Israelites don't seem to be concerned. And I think about how the Gospels write about this. In John chapter 5, Jesus encounters Israelites all the time. And their interactions are always really interesting. In John chapter 5, he's talking to them about the Scripture. And he says, you read the Scriptures. <laughs> that was a privilege of God, right? Out of all the people, I gave you Scripture. What a mercy. And he says, you, you look to the Scriptures thinking that in them you're going to find eternal life. But those Scriptures point to me and you're rejecting me. John chapter 5. John chapter 8. They boast to Jesus, our father is Abraham. We don't even know who your father is. And he's like, actually, your father's not Abraham. He is but he's not. They are presuming the privilege of being descended from Abraham before the descendant of Abraham. It's interesting. In John chapter 9, Jesus heals a man that was born blind, and they question him. And one of the times when they're questioning him, they're like, who is this man? Who do you say he is? And you're like, well, what do you think? And he said, well, we're disciples of Moses. They're they're assuming, right, these are the privileges that are given to us. We are disciples of Moses. We don't even know who this man is. In other words, it seems as if in the Gospels and this book of Romans, just after that, the prevailing posture of the Israelites, ethnic Israelites, is one of presuming upon the privileges of God but cut off from Christ. They assumed that they were right with God because they were part of the chosen people. They presumed upon His mercies and the privileges listed in verses 4 and 5. And in this posture, they are missing the greatest mercy of all in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now again, there's, there's all kinds of things to say about this. And Paul says none of them here, so we will wait for them. But here's what I think we need to receive. There's, there's much to say and explore but that any had received these kinds of privileges, these kinds of mercies, these kinds of graces from God, and are still cut off from relationship with God because they reject Jesus, should serve as a warning to anyone who would read these verses. They were recipients of great privileges and many mercies, and that kind of reality should lead to all kinds of thankfulness and humility and the lack of entitlement in their lives, and it doesn't seem like that was the prevailing winds. In fact, when Paul recounts Israel, he does so in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And as he recounts some of Israel's idolatry and their lives, he says in verse 11, and this is 1 Corinthians 10, 11, he says, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. I think Paul would have us have a right posture toward whatever mercies and graces and privileges we receive from the Lord. We must not be a people who presume upon God, who presume upon His mercies, who 
presume upon his grace and expect these privileges to entitle us to all the things of God. Instead, we need a people who let his kindness do what it's meant to do and lead us to repentance. Let his mercy lead us down further into reliance. That any grace and any mercy, any privileges received shouldn't lead us toward entitlements, but humility before God, thankfulness to God that we should receive anything from the hand of the Lord save his wrath. And that right posture toward the privileges and mercies of God that leads us to a right posture toward God himself that I think Paul exemplifies here as he even introduces this difficult content. Look in verse 5 again. Notice Paul's posture toward God. He says, To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. And it's almost like he can't even get that out without saying this. The Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. When Paul writes of Christ, the one who is descended from Israel, he breaks off into doxology. He breaks off into praise. He does that in a way that's a little bit jolting after what we saw in verses 1. Like he's in great anguish and sorrow, and then all of a sudden God is blessed forever, amen. Again, seconds after they were hearing this, they're hearing God is blessed forever, amen. That's jolting. But what he's doing is he's setting the right trajectory, I think, for this difficult content that we're going to find in chapters 9, 10, and 11. He moves in verse 1 from lament to verse 5, praise. And indeed, this section, we could say, chapters 9, 10, 11, this new section in Romans is a, is a section that is bracketed by praise to God. Verse 5, this is Christ, God over all, blessed forever, amen. Chapter 11, we're going to end this section, he's going to say, oh, the depth and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable are his ways, for who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to God be the glory forever. Amen. Amen. And as he does at the end of 11, so he does here. He does it at the beginning of 9. He bows before the lordship of Jesus. And he says of this Christ, not that he's Lord over part. This is the one who is sovereign and Lord over all, he says. And that is the posture that any are to have when they come to this Christ. The right posture toward God is one of worship. It's interesting that he does this right in the middle of some really difficult contents. Some really hard questions that he's going to ask. Has God's word failed? Has God proven unfaithful? Maybe there's questions here. Maybe there's misunderstanding here. Maybe there's so much unbelief here when we come to this content. But here's what we need to do when we come to it. We need to come with the right posture. And the posture is, you are God over all. Not me. Now, we might not have figured out all the answers that we want. And when we get through with chapter 11, we might not have all the answers that we want and we may not understand all that we want, but we remember that we approach these chapters when we do it, we approach the God who is over all. And at the end, I'm going to journey with you. Let's journey together. Let's move from you are the one who is God over all, blessed forever, amen, to to him, from him, through him, through him are all things and to him be the glory and the honor and blessing forevermore, amen. And so whatever questions and hesitations that you might have, remember as we approach this stuff that this is the one who is God over all. 
And in Christ Jesus specifically, we're thinking of the one who came, the one who died, the one who rose, the one who is seated at the right hand of the Father, and the one who's coming back. Let's enter with worship. We do that together in one way. As we enter into this new section of Romans, we enter together in worship. We do that through the Lord's Supper where we remember the one who came. He's God over all. And we remember that he died, but he's still God over all. And we remember how he showed that he was God over all when he was raised from the dead. And we're still looking to him as God over all, as ones who's seated in the heavens, because we know as God over all, he's coming back. And so we worship him. We worship him by remembering these things together. And so take this meal. If you have faith in Jesus, that he is your God, and that you trust in him, take this meal, take it together as family. We're looking around and remembering the faith of others that God has rescued as well and remembering that he's God over all together and that he's coming back for us as a people. We're doing that together. If you're not in Christ, you haven't trusted in Jesus, Jesus doesn't seem to you or appear to you or you don't think and are convinced that he is God over all, don't take this meal. We want you to know God is over all. That Jesus is the Christ, the one who came to seek and save the lost. Know him first. If you don't know what that means, find a Christian. Ask him, what does it mean to know and follow Christ? But don't take this meal. Instead, take Christ. But if you're a believer, take this meal in great hope that the God we serve and worship is the God who is God over all. Let's pray together. Let's pray. Father, forgive us when we fail to remember the darkness from which we came. It's so easy to look around and be so put off and judgmental towards those who are still in it and who propagate it. But God, we came from that same darkness. And you called us out, Lord. You opened our eyes to the gospel. Someone was faithful to share. God, help us to feel the anguish that Paul feels in Romans 9. Help us to see the real need, to feel the weight of the burden of sin and the wrath that is coming because of it, Lord. Help us to see in humility the grace that we've been shown. God, correct our posture that we might return to simplicity, that we might remember Romans 1.16, believe it, God, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation unto all men. I pray that we would be faithful to preach it to ourselves, God, that our hearts would be full of it, God, that they may overflow, that others may hear and turn from their ways, Lord, and come out of that darkness from which we came. Lord, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.